A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Tuesday the 21st of August with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. In recent days a report was made public which detailed the experiences of at least a thousand survivors, victims of sexual abuse, the abuse of power and of conscience at the hands of priests over a period of approximately 70 years. Even though it can be said that most of these cases belong to the past, nonetheless as time goes on we have come to know the pain of many of the victims. We've realised that these wounds never disappear and that they require us forcibly to condemn these atrocities and join forces in uprooting this culture of death. These wounds never go away. The heart-wrenching pain of these victims which cries out to heaven was long ignored, kept quiet or silenced. That's part of the letter that Pope Francis wrote to the Catholics of the world yesterday. He said, we showed no care for the little ones. We abandoned them. How much filth there is in the church and even among those who in the priesthood ought to be belonging entirely to Christ. How much pride, how much self-complacency. Christ's betrayal by his disciples, their unworthy reception of his body and blood is certainly the greatest suffering endured by the Redeemer. It pierces his heart. We can only call to him from the depths of our hearts. Lord, save us. The Pope asks that he be forgiven. Let us beg forgiveness for our own sins and the sins of others, he says. An awareness of sin helps us to acknowledge the errors, the crimes and the wounds caused in the past and allows us in the present to be more open and committed along a journey of renewed conversion. Likewise, penance and prayer will help us to open our eyes and our hearts to other people's sufferings and to overcome the thirst for power and possessions that are so often the root of those evils. May fasting and prayer open our ears to the hushed pain felt by children, young people and the disabled. A fasting that shakes us up and leads us to be committed in truth and charity with all men and women of goodwill and with society in general to combating all forms of the abuse of power, sexual abuse and to the abuse of conscience. Pope Francis concludes his letter by saying, May the Holy Spirit grant us the grace of conversion and the interior anointing needed to express before these crimes of abuse our compunction and our resolve courageously to combat them. John Kelly is coordinator and founder of the Survivors of Child Abuse or SOCA. He's on the line. John, you've been waiting to hear from the Pope for some time. Is this what you were hoping to hear? Well, they're all fine words, I have to say. And I, I like what you read out there. I mean, I 
directly after, in fact, the, uh, the Vatican came out and said the Pope was on the side of victims against predator priests. And then I have to ask myself, why now? Why this time? Why, why his predecessor, uh, uh, this Pope Francis, has never said anything about anything. And I, I have to say, I am cynical because I'll go to deal in a minute. It's obviously about the grand jury uh, in, in America. And I, that's the reason for this. And then that's the reason for the 2,000 words. The, I, I did look at the, the there is somebody, especially when we, we, uh, we showed no care for the little ones and we abandoned them. That's fine. There's all, but i be quite honest. I've looked at Bishop Martin's statement there last week, his letter. And to me, that's more reformist. It's more progressive. But he is a progressive bishop. But he was saying the structures, what cause the structures. Mm. He's, he's going into the, the nitty-gritty of a, what caused them, why did it happen? And you see, one of the reasons when I said I wanted to meet with the Pope was this. I wanted to say to him, look, don't you get it? There's something rotten within the church that allows this to happen. We don't see this in any other profession. I mean, you, you mentioned uh, a thousand, and there's more victims in Pennsylvania, but 300, that's an awful lot of priests just in, in mm. one state. We're not talking about America as a whole, we're talking about one state. So why is it, they, this is what they need to be asking, why is it that our priests are doing it? And say in comparison, and you weigh it up against, say, teachers, for example, and I'm not finding uh, any blame with the mm. teachers or anything, but I'm saying is other professions. The, the amount of priests doing it is actually, it's enormous. They are, the, they are the questions they have to be asked. So something within the church isn't right. And I'm not saying it's all down to... Uh, well, I, I suppose you, you could say pre, not allowing priests marry and uh, having, having sex with you, but that's, I think that's a contributory factor. Without, without. Celibacy is a contributory factor. Not all people celebrate. I recognize that. Celibacy, all people are celibate. Pedophiles, mm. I understand that. Well, I think it quite possibly is that pedophiles can hide in the church and they've found a place to hide, so they've gone to the church and find the priesthood something that suits them because of the trust that they enjoy and how not only can they commit these crimes, but they're covered up and that they are protecting the victims abandoned. On that note, it's interesting to hear the Pope ask for forgiveness himself. Let us beg forgiveness for our own sins, he said. Uh, and do you think that he, he's uh, relating that to his failures in relation to the victims in Chile? Yeah, you see, no, his own failures in that. His own failures. Yes. Uh, now, you've now gone to the nitty-gritty, but the nuts and bolts of it. That is what it, this is what this is all about, is this couldn't have happened for seven as seven decades, not just in America, but all over the world. This happened in four continents without the knowledge of the cardinals in Rome. So at the highest level, they knew about this. So what I want to know is, why didn't he talk about it? Why didn't they do something about it? Why don't they say, well, hold on, there's something in the house of the church that's rotten. What is it? What was it? Now, he doesn't mention that about, about that, and I suspect the reason why. And, I, I think he's probably a genuine pope, I really do. But I think he's surrounded with curate. That's the, the cabinet of the, of the church. It's something like what's happening in Britain one day. <laughs> you know, Prime Minister want, May wants to go one way and the, the, cabinet wants to go, mm. the cabinet wants to go another way. And that's what it is. You see, these people have a vested interest. If you take Chile, for example, I mean, 
Pope initially blamed victims. He said they were, you know, over-exaggerating. And then he's had to accept uh, an enormous amount of bishops and cardinals' resignations. So, see, there seems to be a contradiction. That's why I said, what I said earlier, the Pope is on the side of the victim against... Well, if that was the case, the people that's protecting them, this couldn't have happened without the protection at the higher level. Now, to ask for forgiveness, I'm sorry, that doesn't cut it anymore. Because Mm. it sounds, the whole thing sounds sincere. Insincere, rather. It is very, very insincere. The fact is, people want to say, well, if something's rotten, cut it out. And it's cancerous. Well, the Pope is saying that people in the church need to pray for forgiveness, they uh, need to do penance, uh, and they need to fast uh, in the hope that they will be forgiven, uh, um, and that this will stop as a result of the fasting. Uh, But I I think there are some people who would suggest that if you put uh, a structure in place and protocols in place and change canon law so that things have to change, well, you probably could have a good dinner and not worry about praying. If he was sincere, let me give you another example, Mike. If he really was sincere, in America, see, America is a different beast altogether. It's unlike here. We had an inquiry here that no one went to prison. No one was even charged. In fact, no one was even named or shamed in their inquiry. Over there, it's a different beast completely. Now, the church has accepted in America that bishops aren't protected. That's why didn't they, why don't they do that worldwide? If he is sincere, and put it into canon law. But he, this is I don't see this anywhere in this letter. It's two thousand my word. So that's one way of rooting this out. Uh, to me, in the absence of anything like that, I don't see how uh, they may not be able to do abuse anyway because there's too many eyes on them now. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't answer the the real question. How it happens, why it happens, and especially to preach and everything else. I think Chile is. I think Chile is not an isolated case, and I think most of the cardinals in Rome are somehow involved, are connected, are covered up, are protected. Hmm. And I didn't hear once in this column crimes. The crimes. Why doesn't he make a statement and say not only will bishops not be protected, that their first duty is to report this to the police? I mean, they should operate under state law, any country's laws. Well, I think the Pope does refer to crimes and criminal action and uh, that there's compliance in in cover-up and uh, what he says in relation to that, uh, I think, is in support of what people want done, but giving a roadmap to getting it done is another day's work and the uh, Bishop's Accountability Organisation have been highlighting how there's 1,300 members of the clergy who have had credible allegations of child sexual abuse made against them in this country and only 75 of them can be named. Well, you see, well then, one of the he's the Pope. He's the Pope. It's, I, I, I got, and they had a big, huge conglomerate company. You have to look at them in that way. I've said this time and time again, and it's about finance and money. That's essentially what it is. Now, just imagine the HSE, for example. If all these things were going on, we've seen it with the controversy about the, uh, the cervical cancer scare and everything else. Heads would eventually roll. Something would be done. Well, it's, it's no good apologizing. Apologize. That isn't enough. You have to put structures in place to say, 
and then investigation. How did this happen? All right, what we're going to do, we're going to remove the people who should have been watching these. I mean, you have a pyramid of authority within Rome and all the way down. So if they've known, and they have known about priests doing this, and we know, and bishops covering up, why didn't the cardinals say, you're gone, you're gone, you're gone. This is not going to happen. That's what he needs to do, but they're not. They're still trying to protect the institution of the church. I think it's a bit rich to be asking people to pray and fast. I mean, should we pray and fast for Fred West and his victims? What, what is that about? I can't understand that. What I'm talking about is equality of justice. That's what they need to do. And they need to admit, look, we ourselves, at the higher end of the church, there's no that oh, well, we didn't do things right. That's not, no. We allowed this to go on. We are, we are, we are ourselves are complicit in it. And we need to restructure the whole church so this can never happen again. And to make sure that, go back to what they were good at. They've lost their way, the church. The, and especially the conclave of, of, of bishops, of cardinals. They're so conservative, it's, it's unbelievable. They will not let this go. And they do not want reform because it will affect them. Yeah, it's. Um, well, you look at Bishop Martin's letter, Mike. I mean, I, I, well, I think what he said was, was uh, he said, it's not enough just to say sorry. Now, I didn't hear the Pope saying anything like this. And he says, the structures that permit, and that's basically what I've been on about, that permit or facilitate abuse must be broken down and broken down forever. He says, why does this not happen? Now, he's saying what I'm saying. Mm. Why does the, he's, a, he's a bishop saying to the Pope, why does this not happen? Uh, he also goes on to say, uh, it's not just the anger of the horror abuse, but it's the anger at the role, the church, and the leadership compounding the suffering. And that's where he said so many in the institution of children, unmanned mothers and stuff, think that it's widespread. It's not just physical abuse, it's uh, sexual abuse, it's physical abuse, it's mm. emotional abuse, it's how they operate it. And the only thing I'm astonished is Bishop Martin he says uh, he said he asked himself what was it with the Irish capitalism that has led to such levels of harshness it's not just in Ireland it's mm. now we now see it in America well it's not just in Ireland uh, we see it in America from the grand jury uh, report in Pennsylvania but uh, this report uh, from uh, the bishop accountability dot organization yeah. uh, highlights how there's 3,400 clergy across the world who've been disciplined uh, by the Vatican for sexually abusing children uh, and 1,331 of them in Ireland. This is going back to 1975. Uh, and the, the names of just 75 of those are, are known to us. Yeah, but you see, that's the point. If the bishops are coming out with this, who do you think they're addressing that at? They're addressing it at, at Papa. Up the road, they're saying, look, you have to do something about mm. this. We're getting this in the neck. Now, they probably don't have control of enough. And all this about, oh, we're defrocking people. It's nothing good to defrocking. You bring in the police, you have an inquiry, mm. you let the police do their business, and if, if there's no evidence, that's the end of it. But that's what happens in all cases. Why is the church treated any differently? That's why. But, 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 but quite often, uh, the bishops would have thought that there was truth in it and would have sent offenders off for treatment. Oh, I do, but that's because 
somebody higher up is laying down the orders, the structures. That's mm. what Bishop Martin's on about. They'd have sent them off to a, a different diocese. They'd have sent them off country. out of the that's country. What yeah. no, that's mm. well known. That's happened. We know they're here and all. They moved mm. them around. Yeah. First of all, and I was talking to Loretto Martin yesterday about Brandon Smith and how he was moved on to America and yeah. Wales and continued to abuse children over a 40-year period. But that just wasn't from the bishops. That went higher up as well. So it's about protecting the church. So what I'm saying, it's fine saying we let people down. I, I think it's minimising it in mm. some ways of what the Pope is saying. Look, it's, it's stating you in the, the face. Po- the the we- Pope didn't say anything about the world meeting of families, how two cardinals uh, have withdrawn. Patrick from- O'Malley. Yeah. Well, li- listen, I... Uh, we were to meet, um, we, we got a written letter from the Carlos when they came here some years back. Mm-hmm. We wanted to put all these questions to them. And I got a letter from Cardinal Patrick O'Malley of uh, New York a couple of days after they'd been to Ireland. And basically what he said is, he says, we're sorry we couldn't meet with you, but due to the commitment and the itinerary, it wasn't possible after he left. Now, because the same thing happened here. We asked to meet this Pope. We wanted to point out all the things I've said to you this morning. This is what victims want. Uh, and again, as I said, I got a letter back from the Bishop Martin to say that we should contact the, the papal nuncio. Now, the papal nuncio mm. is basically just a diplomat. He has nothing got to do with it. This is in the, the remit and control of the Archbishop of Dublin. So if he really wanted to... He could let us in, and we would then say, but you see, they don't want this, because that would make world news. Mm. And I said, I, 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 I really believe that this letter, Mike, is in response to the Pennsylvania... Uh, oh, uh, well, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, but yeah. when you talk about Pennsylvania, uh, the other cardinal who's withdrawn from uh, the yeah. World Meeting of Families is uh, Donald Pwerl, uh, who right. was criticised, heavily criticised in this report for covering up child sexual abuse by paedophile priests, moving them on uh, and sending them for treatment uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, he's not here to answer questions about that. Uh, and indeed, he was also associated with... Uh, with Cardinal McCarrick, another paedophile uh, who had an association, it was said that uh, it was known for many years uh, the type of uh, person he was. Uh, somebody else uh, who shared a room with him, it's reported, is Cardinal Kevin Farrell, who's uh, the organiser right. of the World Meeting of Families uh, in this country, Dublin born priest uh, and uh, very close to the Pope. Uh, and there's a, a fourth South American cardinal uh, who's associated with the cover up of uh, child sexual uh, abuse. Uh, and uh, the campaign groups have asked that these people be investigated rather than be given a platform to preach to people. Well, that's exactly, you see, because. If you were to invite, or if these people came, there would be a distraction. And the whole thing wouldn't be about the world families. It would be about abuse and about these people who covered it up. All this covered up, complicit in crimes. That's what these people are. And, and, and I think it should be dealt with and approached in that fashion. But it, you asked me earlier, and, and mm. that's what I'm saying, mm. it's at the highest tier level within the church that the cover-up is going on. So it isn't, and I think this Pope may have, I, I, I probably, if I'm cynical enough, I think that maybe they decided to elect this guy to give a different image. But this, I, I think this Pope really does want to say something, but he's restricted. And I think he could reform up. The only problem, I, I fear it's so endemic within the Cardinals that the church itself, it really, it could fall in a sense that 
you'd have to really start all over again. It's yeah. rotten. And if, if Jesus was alive today, like in the market, I think he would chase them all out of it. But the Pope is writing to the Catholics of the world, asking for forgiveness, asking that he and other Catholics fast to find a way out of this and is coming to Dublin to the world meeting of families which is mired in controversy with uh, two cardinals pulling out uh, because, uh, not more possibly because, it could be a coincidence, uh, but possibly because of investigations into child sexual abuse and two others uh, who uh, have been asked to answer questions relating to the cover-up of child sexual abuse and uh, campaign groups asking that they be removed from the line of, of speakers. Uh, and the Pope hasn't said anything about asking people to be accountable or asking questions no. of people or withdrawing names from this uh, very significant global meeting that is taking place in this country this week. But what I'm saying, why doesn't he meet the likes of us? Now, we're not going to shoot him. We're not going to do anything dangerous. We just sit down and say, listen, here's your problem. This cardinal, that cardinal, this cardinal, that cardinal. And in fact, what we would say is hand them over and let them present themselves to the state authorities in whatever country that is. If the church has to fall in that way and rebuild itself up, fine. But it's no good. You, if something's rotten, you have to cut it out. Now, he needs to listen to that. But I suspect that the conclave of Carlos, the, the curia of the Carlos, the cabinet, they won't allow that because most of them are involved in the cover-up in some way. Now, praying... I understand what he's on about there. And I can, he's probably, the Pope, Pope I, I should imagine, he's, he doesn't know where to turn to. And that's why in one sense he's asking about prayers and everything else. But uh, as I go back to the point, imagine the HSE coming out and saying, look, what we want you to do is try and hope and pray for us that we can get this right and everything else. People, we're not in the 18th century anymore. People say, well, hold on, you knew what you were doing. Let you make yourself accountable. And that's all I suggest to the Pope is make the people accountable. Let this the only way you can sort out an organization. You bring in somebody and you say, right, investigate everything and say, look, how did this happen? Why is it happening? Why, in, as I started at the very start, so many priests, why in our profession is it happening? Now, I can understand in the institution where I was, it was obviously inappropriate for Christian brothers and priests be looking at in, in an enclosed place, just children. I mean, they're going to take some sexual frustration on, out on somebody, and the nearest person was the ch children. But they were protected by the state. And that's basically what's happening around the world, except America. Uh, in America, they, won't, they, they don't tolerate any of that. Well... But, the Irish been, state yeah. Well, they've uh, been a little bit slower in fairness well, uh, to, slow, slow. to publishing this report and, and they do say uh, that uh, there'll be similar reports uh, from state uh, after state uh, yeah. which will reflect exactly what we've been hearing from Pennsylvania. Well, we, you must remember, we're talking about a global organisation such as the church. I mean, it has 3,000 years of experience. Mm. You don't just take them on you have to do it in such a way that, you know, like they did in, in Pennsylvania. Else, I, and you, we're talking about a, a seven-year decade uh, thing. I understand that. But they wanted to come out with this and say, well, we gave it a fair inquiry. We did this. But at the end of the day, there is end product. We didn't have end product here. And it has an impact because the fact this letter 
itself has had an impact. So maybe then it's like a snowball. I think, in my impression, it may get bigger. And But the only way you can, and I repeated this many, many times in your show, Mike, is that mm. the people that the Pope is talking to, to pray and everything else, I would suggest to them, say, ask answers. Because the only way the church can be reformed is from the bottom up. It's rotten from the top. Okay, John, we leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. John Kelly, coordinator and founder of SOCA, that's the Survivors of Child Abuse Group in Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Cyclists are being advised uh, that wearing a helmet can reduce uh, the risk of a serious head injury by 70% and of a fatal head injury by 65%. Caroline Cullen, Communications and Engagement Manager with Acquired Brain Injury Ireland, is on the line. Caroline, good morning. I take it that the stark reality of ignoring that uh, advice is uh, that you're facing into the prospect of a life changing if not a a life ending situation absolutely i mean uh the road safety authority statistics last year reported um that cyclist fatalities went up by 50 percent so this is something not to be ignored on that front but i suppose what we don't hear an awful lot about is the numbers of cyclists that are injured every year so um when i looked at the collision statistics with the road safety authority Uh, There's more than 800 cyclists uh, suffer injuries in collisions in Ireland every year. And Um, when you say injured, what do you mean by that? I mean, are you talking about everything from a graze upwards? Yes, I mean, that's the thing. We don't know from those statistics, you know, um, how many, you know, well, actually, we do know more than 100 were seriously injured, but they don't define the injuries more than that. Um, And they also don't actually um, state whether the people are wearing a helmet or not. So what we do know, I mean, in our services, obviously, we see people with brain injury. And as you say, it is life altering. And the reality is that if somebody comes off a bike and the impact of that and hits their head, um, if they're not wearing a helmet, they are risking um, a massive skull fracture, um, which is a really serious head injury. Um, and that's what we're trying mm. to prevent here. And I mean, I mean you hear yeah. of people getting a, a punch uh, and falling back on the pavement and cracking their head and dying. Uh, so yeah. I, I think it's uh, it's all the more serious if you come off a bicycle because you're doing so at a greater speed. Absolutely. In theory, you are doing it at a greater speed. I mean, it, it, you mentioned a one punch. We do have people who've had brain injuries from one punch assaults as well. All of these things, your your brain, you know, you can't, you can't protect it enough, really. Um, but the, I suppose the problem we're seeing now is that you know, people kind of, I suppose, with commuting, which is brilliant that people want to actively commute to work and so on. But maybe there's a bit of kind of um, casualness about it and that they think of it as, oh, it's just a short hop on the bike. I'll just jump on and, and off I go. But really, we're kind of saying whether you're on a bike for five minutes or an hour, you know, we want you to wear a helmet. Mm. Um, because currently it's not compulsory um, to wear a helmet. Um, Should it know, be? Um, well, I suppose in our view, yes. I mean, we would think it should be part of any routine, getting on a bike. Yeah. Um, a helmet should be part of that. Because that would so pose that- significant problems because as you highlight in your statement, there's a lot of people who are hiring out uh, the city bikes uh, that are, are there to rent. Uh, and, you know, quite often that's not planned or they haven't a helmet with them, regardless of whether it's planned or, or not. Uh, so in yeah. order to use those bikes, uh, it's quite uh, a possibility that people would be breaking the law. That's it. Uh, if, yeah, exactly. If it was brought mm. into law, that would be the case. Um, I suppose with all of these things, there are logistics to be looked at. But at the end of the day, we are talking about protect, you know, preventing people from having a skull fracture. 
I mean, most people who, uh, you know, know cyclists who, there's always stories about, you know, where somebody came off their bike and their helmet was cracked. So if you're not wearing a helmet, that's your skull that's cracked. Is, you know, is, that's, is it look at the draw, about. though, in terms of the consequence of that? Uh, I, I'm sure uh, the severity of uh, the blow is very uh, important, but does it matter in terms of which part of the head hits the ground first? Is it a, a question of look of the draw that you could come off your bike one day and be grand and the next day be dead or uh, severely incapacitated? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a doctor now. Mm. I'm not, you know, yeah. so in terms of that, I'm not a brain surgeon. But in, but yeah, absolutely, uh, there is look of the draw. There are there are always stories, yes, of people who come off their bikes, hit their head, maybe a cracked helmet, and they're perfect. But um, but there's so many that we see in our services um, that that's not the case. You know, we have, you know, we've known cases where, um, you know, somebody, and it was where he was knocked off his bike um, by a motorist, and he wasn't wearing a helmet. And, you know, he has, uh, this, this man's life has completely changed. Mm. And his family, because, you know, he's not the same man that he once was. Uh, and our, you know, our goal in Acquire Berningi Ireland, of course, is to get people back to as much independence as possible. Um, but for some cases, if it is a severe, you know, brain injury, that could be years, you know, years of, you know, um, individual rehabilitation for that person to do normal everyday things. Um, and this is the stuff people, and obviously, you know, you're not thinking about it in your day to day, but you're talking about things like memory problems. You know, there are people with like short term memory problems where you have a conversation with them one day, but the next day it's as if it never happened. And that's the sort of thing that can happen that families have to live with, that they're, the person they love has changed, you know, maybe forever. And I suppose it's like any draw. There's winners and losers. And if you think, well, you know, it's luck of the draw. Well, you could be as unlucky as anybody uh, as uh, quickly as you could be lucky. So, I mean, there's a, yeah. a, a message in that for people, isn't there? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's in, in some ways, I would, you know, compare it. You know, many years ago, we used to, you know, drive without seatbelts and mm. so on. And, and even if we think about, you know, car seats for children and so on, I mean, they've all progressed that there's, there's all different sizes and everything to suit as the child grows and all the rest. So, you know, it is, I think it is a good time now to look at cycling. Um, and it doesn't, it goes without saying as well that, you know, helmets aren't the only thing that are going to ensure cycle safety. I mean, the actual cycling infrastructure, of course, needs to be looked at. Um, but certainly from our side, you know, obviously protecting a brain, we're all about the helmets. Uh, and do you think that cyclists need to realise themselves that they are vulnerable, uh, even if they are wearing helmets and trying to do all of the right things? Uh, because uh, there is uh, an attitude to some degree that they've as much right to be on the road as anybody else, uh, and therefore they'll cycle in a certain way, whether that's in the middle of the road or four abreast. But, you know, whilst they might have a, a point, uh, they could end up badly injured as a result of it. Well, absolutely, because obviously, you know, I mean, there's a big difference between if you compare, you know, a a car, a vehicle that has, you know, that goes through all sorts of testing for impact and has all sorts of, you know, it's a metal vehicle versus a person that's flesh and bone. Um, And the thing about it is when you are sharing a road with other road users, you know, um, you might be perfect in how you're behaving on the road, but there's the unpredictability of other road users. And there's also just unforeseen things that, you know, um, you could, I mean, if you weren't wearing cycling gear, you could get your trousers caught in the wheel. It could be anything or a bump in the road, Mm. you know. So it's not necessarily anything that's your fault that causes you to come off the bike. Um, But yeah, absolutely, of course, they're more vulnerable.
Okay, we'll leave it there. Thanks indeed for joining us this morning. Caroline Cullen is the Communications and Engagement Manager with Acquired Brain Injury Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. The rehab group is looking for an increase of €20 Euro in uh, the disability allowance. Uh, this follows a survey of more than 300 people with disabilities. The vast majority of uh, these people out of work, 70% say they don't have a job and that people don't want to give them a, a job for that matter. Kathleen O'Mara, Director of Communications, Public Affairs and Fundraising with the Rehab Group is on the line. And Kathleen, you've found that people are living in poverty, having to make some very stark choices on occasions, choosing between fuel or food. Yes, that's right. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about this very important issue. Um, we represent thousands of people uh, with disabilities, and as part, you know, as part of our annual pre-budget submission, we did this survey to find out, you know, what people's lives are like. And you know, we, we're hearing a lot at the moment about how the economy is recovering, people are back at work, and that's all great. But it seems to us very much like that people with disabilities are being left behind, and they're being left behind on two fronts. One, the cuts that were made during the recession, cuts to social welfare, cuts to things like mobility allowance. It's time that they get restored. Uh, they are re- That's really impacting people with disabilities. And secondly, you know, the whole issue of work. Uh, I was reading um, an esteemed economist, um, John Fitzgerald, writing recently in the Irish Times where he was saying there's two areas of underemployment. Uh, in the Irish economy, and one is, and then we're talking underemployment mm. among women and among people with disabilities. And when you and mean, when you talk, when you say underemployment, uh, you mean that people aren't getting as much work as they'd like to get. It's not people, a forty-hour week, who, for example. Yeah, mm. well, no, there are people mm. who are capable of working who are not working. Mm. Now, you know, uh, what we, what one has to say is that there are, you know, quite a number of people with disabilities who would need support mm. from an employer uh, to to be in the workforce, but. That support is available. For instance, we, the rehab group, provides that support to employers. We know we're, we're talking to IBEC now because uh, we know that many large companies, in particular, want to bring in people who have a disability and they want to get that support. So we're saying, please reach out, reach out to us, reach out to the Department of Social Welfare, you know, reach out to IBEC itself, um, and you know, and, and give people an opportunity. Um, uh, but it's going to take that. It's going to take some support to do that. Mm. Also, what a lot of employers mightn't be aware of is that there is a support available. There is the way, what's called the wage subsidy scheme. Uh, so if, if an employer does um, take on people, somebody with a disability, they may qualify to get this support themselves as an employer. So, you know, those incentives are there. And it's time now, definitely, you know, to, to, to ensure that people with disabilities are not left at the back of the queue again. They're not left at the back of well, the job and they're not left at the back that, of the for that, that doesn't continue, in other words. Exactly. Mm. Correct. That, that doesn't continue. Because what you're inclined to hear is, oh, you know, uh, well, you know, when times were hard, um, you know, when unemployment was, was high, that, you know, it was so-called able-bodied people were getting mm. the were getting the first round. But you'll see it everywhere. You'll see it in the housing, with the housing prices. People with disabilities, you know, are very small numbers of them getting uh, social housing they're because they're inclined to be left behind. And, you know, one of the things about not having money and not being able to go out is you become isolated. But as well as that, you don't get seen. You're not seen. Mm. Uh, you know, you can't, you know, you can't fight for yourself. Uh, you can't go places. 
Um, I mean, apart from there's no stimulation, the there's, no, there's nothing yeah. to keep your mind going. In other words, uh, but right. uh, put, put put it into context for us. Uh, how much is the disability allowance now? The disability allowance is 198 euros. Okay, you know. so that's, yeah, that's uh, a weekly. That's a weekly. Payment. It's 10 yeah. euro more than a, a, a single unemployed person would get. Uh, but I, I take it that there's some significant differences in that a person with disability would have costs on an ongoing basis right. that a, a normal yeah. person, an able-bodied person wouldn't have uh, and they've less opportunity to find employment exactly just say for instance prescription charges it might seem like a small thing but prescription charges if you're you know if you're on you know good if you're on medication that adds up so it's time that that goes you know those things make a difference mobility allowance restoring mobility allowance that went during the recession you know for people who need support in getting around and hmm. um, it's increasingly difficult for people to have a personal assistant um, for many people who who might be wheelchair bound, you know, and need support in getting around transport. If you have a disability, you rely on public transport. Uh, it's okay. It's it's not as as expensive as driving a car, but it can be quite expensive, particularly if you need it to get, you know, say for instance, to a job, um, you know, or to a place uh, of training to a course. Now we provide rehab provides uh, transport for lots of people uh, who use our services and we know from what they tell us that um, if we didn't provide that transport they wouldn't be coming uh, to the day services or they wouldn't be coming to do courses you know and they wouldn't have the life they have they wouldn't be able to get out basically a lot of people um, will rely on their own family mm. which is fine as long as as long as that's okay as long as that's what they want to do uh, in many cases they have they don't have a choice the, the UNCRPT, the United Nations Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, is all about recognising that people with disabilities need additional support if they're going to be treated equally and if they're going to be allowed to participate equally with the rest of the population. And clearly that's, that's not happening. Now, this is the first budget since the ratification uh, of the United Nations Convention. And we are calling on the government to live up to the promises that they have made by ratifying that convention finally um, in the areas of work and in the areas of social welfare and to recognise uh, that it's, it's time now. Uh, it's well overdue. Time is well overdue. Um, and to stop leaving people with disabilities back at the end of the queue. Uh, and there's the cost of transport as well, isn't there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the cost of transport is one of the things that is, uh, you know, that is causing a lot, a, a lot of pressure for people with disabilities. Because if you're on 198 euros a week, you can say you can be spending, and you know, our survey showed that more than 40 percent, four in ten, saying that they spend between 11 euro and 90 euro a week on transport. Hmm. Um, 90 euro a week on transport is a lot of money, no matter what way you look at it. And if you're on 198 euro a week, that doesn't leave you with an awful lot else. Um, you know, um, in, in the area of work, uh, what we're hearing back is that people feel that uh, people don't want to hire people with disabilities. There is a perception, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, and that workplaces aren't welcoming places. Um, and now a lot has, has improved on that, but clearly we have a long way to go. But mm-hmm. certainly in our experience, uh, what, what we're what we're finding is that employers do need support, and like I said earlier, we're calling on employers to you know to remember that there's a lot of people out there who are not only well able to work, 
really want to work, have a contribution to make to the workforce and would be very, very, would be great. But there's a a logical reluctance to that, isn't there, in that uh, people are going to question the ability of people who have a a disability. And uh, I I know that people are always asked to focus on people's ability, but when it comes to uh, employing them and paying them for their work, uh, well, uh, you've probably got some way to go. Uh, What range of disabilities or, or what type of work are you talking about or how do you match the two? Well, I mean, we are, we, the rehab group, we have, we have enterprises. It's part of our, you know, of our, of our overall um, business, I suppose, if you want to put it like that. In fact, mm-hmm. rehab enterprises is a commercial business. And, you know, we employ people who are forklift drivers. We employ people who are doing, um, what we, you know, who are working in an enterprise in Port Leash, who are um, shredding exam papers. Not, not, not yet now. This year. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. okay, just to be yeah, clear. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, who are shredding, say, confidential yeah. uh, papers. We have people doing, down in Limerick, uh, an offshoot of the, Dell, uh, of the Dell operation who are doing what you call pick and pack. In other words, you know, you're packing various items into their, you know, into their boxes and into their, into their right places. So, you know, it's that kind of, it's, mm. it's that kind of work. Um, medical supplies, organizing medical supplies for companies. And a lot of, you know, we, we can, our people can do things which are easily outsourced mm. as well. And uh, as um, you said earlier on, if people are interested in employing somebody, they can talk to you. Exactly. We have a business development unit and one of the things we're doing is developing exactly that relationships with employers mm. so that we can go in and we can say, this is what you can do. And we do know, like I say, through IBEC, um, mm. who themselves in their pre-budget submission have supported our call for an increase in the wage, uh, the wage subsidy yeah. scheme. Uh, and so give, they can see yeah. that there is underemployment there and that there's capacity there and you know that it's time to to reach out but they also know that you know support is required you know we we have expertise in this area and we're very very happy to okay. uh, very very happy to support employers so please get in touch with us about uh, that and, if anybody's out there with it. and in light of uh, the reluctance to recruit you're calling for that 20 euro increase in the disability allowance i have to leave yes. it there kathleen for the moment thank you though for joining us as always. thank, thank you, you. kathleen o'mara director of communications public affairs and fundraising with the rehab group Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of the calls and some of the text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to all our listeners. Jimmy phoned in at the top of the show and says that the numbers that are turning out to see the Pope are not a reflection of the media's attitude towards Catholicism. He says that he believes there's militants out there who are anti-Catholics and are inciting religious hate and egging people on and using the media. He wants to know where is the balance, that there's no balance on this show. It's all the negative. Uh, We did an email in from Trays who says, Michael, I'm sick of this constant church bashing. While I was raised a Catholic, I am now an atheist and listening to these people now I feel is sickening. As an OAP I know and experienced what went on in this country for decades with child abuse and paedophilia and I know it was far from confined to clerics. School teachers, guardy, farmers, solicitors, judges, nurses, doctors, social workers, politicians and people from all walks of life were involved in and aware of child abuse and the cover-ups. The entire Irish society was totally complicit and culpable for decades and delay in introducing recent protections and rules in civil law proved this. Direct family members of those being abused knew what was going on and said nothing. 
It's easy blaming a church, but we need to take a long, hard look at the culture throughout Irish society and particularly the civil elite in society that didn't want to address or recognise this, says Trace. That's an interesting comment, Trace. Thanks for that. Uh, And I'm sure that you're right uh, in what you're saying, uh, that uh, it happened uh, outside of uh, the church, uh, but it was also known to others uh, who either said nothing or helped cover it up. Sean phoned in and says, listening to the horrific stories during the week from some of the victims of clerical sex abuse, it makes you realise the grip that the church had on society in that time. Children seemed afraid to tell their parents what was going on because maybe they worried that they wouldn't be believed or that the church had such a hold on everybody in society. It seemed that the church was a, was immune from being challenged. It was an awful time for people, mm, say yeah, Sean. Absolutely awful time, there's no doubt about it. And you hear Loretto tell us during the week uh, about how Brendan Smith... Uh, raped and abused her in the name of God and told her that uh, she'd go to hell if uh, she didn't do what she was told. Franz texted in to say that these apostles of sin should be defrocked and straight into prison. Which apostles of sin, I wonder? Uh, is it the paedophiles or the holy men who covered up for the paedophiles? Or all of them. Or all of them, yeah. Mm. Maureen phoned in and Maureen says that the Pope's visit is a joyous occasion for the country and please God, hopefully it will bring a bit of joy and reconciliation. She says, let our papal flags fly and make it a nice weekend for the many Catholics in Ireland. People have been hurt, but it's not the Pope's fault. He didn't do it. I live in Navan and I feel there's an absence of papal flags around the town for what should be a joyous occasion. Mm, I don't think anybody said uh, that uh, the Pope did anything uh, directly wrong himself. Uh, There's questions about the church and uh, the policy of the church to cover up and protect both the offenders as well as the institution of the church and that is a, a result of that people are asking uh, why uh, some people who had questions to answer as they saw it uh, were to speak at the world meeting of families and have withdrawn uh, in recent days including Cardinal World and whilst some others who people believe have questions to ask about the cover up mm. of sexual abuse are still set to speak at the world meeting of families. Linda says, Michael, can you not promote anything positive about the Pope's visit? So many people are looking forward to it and are honoured to have the Pope in Ireland. Yes, what went on in the church was wrong, as it was wrong in so many other organisations, including the media. But it's all one-sided on your show, all about the bad side Nothing about the good side, says Linda. Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. All right. Uh, well, hopefully uh, there will be uh, some uh, different views heard on uh, the programme in uh, the coming days. Uh, we did hear from Catholic Comment uh, the day before yesterday, I think it was. Uh, but uh, we are uh, hoping to hear from a, a number of people uh, who feel differently about some of the issues uh, that will be discussed over the course of uh, the next few days at the World Meeting of Families, which includes uh, the papal visit, of course. Mary in and says that there is much to be shameful for in relation to the Catholic Church and what was allowed to happen. And she says this has to be dealt with, she feels, before the Church will ever be able to move forward. However, she says for many people like herself, their relationship 
is with God and they still believe. She says, without my faith, I'd be lost. Mm, yeah, And that's what makes all of this, I think, so difficult for so many people. And we do obviously recognise that. Uh, but when little children have been hurt in the, the way that they have been hurt uh, and uh, that an institution and the integrity of the institution, if you like, was more important than the little children, uh, well, then... I don't know, but I, I think it's probably worth discussing. Yes, we had a phone call from John who says that the scale of the abuse, Michael, that mm-hmm. was done within the church throughout the world is just absolutely frightening mm. and horrific. And God love any of those affected. And they have my full respect for being able to go on and live their lives after enduring such horrific mm. abuse. Yeah. Yeah, it really is on a massive scale. There's no doubt about it. When you hear of a, a, a thousand people identified in Pennsylvania, uh, I think everybody knows that that means that there were thousands upon that, but maybe three, four thousand uh, people who were the subject of uh, that type of uh, abuse in Pennsylvania alone. Another listener didn't want to give her name, but just said uh, this call came in yesterday and just said, Michael, uh, most people, most ordinary decent people, hmm. would not condone anything to do yeah. with clerical sex abuse yeah. or, or children being abused or, or anybody being abused. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, there are many people who, and it's similar to what the other Mary said, really, there are many people who have their faith and to them, their faith is what is important. In times of need and when things go wrong, most people turn to their church to help them get through. And that's the point mm-hmm. that, yeah. that, that she was making. And, and, and I think this is a, a time when people are, are questioning a lot of things, possibly mm. their faith, or otherwise, yes. I don't know, and just reacting to the criticism of the coverage on the programme and uh, I, I hope uh, people uh, liked hearing the extract of the Pope's letter, because I think uh, we read two-thirds of uh, the Pope's letter on the programme this morning. So uh, in terms of giving balance to the whole conversation, we heard from Pope Francis directly or as directly as possible. Can I move on Mm. then to the cycling and Mm. the helmets? Because we did a couple of calls in relation to that. Maria from Drogheda phoned in during the interview just to say that my friend was knocked down uh, by somebody on a bicycle in Dublin in recent weeks, Michael. Knocked down by somebody on a bicycle? Yes. Okay. She she was walking? Walking. Walking to work. Walking to work is in critical condition. This happened a number of weeks ago. I'm just wondering, who is responsible for that? The cyclist went straight into her. It was busy in Dublin, but now she's lying in hospital. Hmm. So that's the scary part of it, isn't it, Michael? That's the scary yeah. part. I'm not yeah. going to answer the question. No. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, obviously, there won't be any insurance or anything like that. I'm not sure if uh, it's a, a question for a solicitor, uh, but I, I won't uh, attempt to answer that at the moment. No, because mm-hmm. you'd have to have mm-hmm. all the facts yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, another listener was in touch saying, can't believe it's not compulsory to wear a helmet, especially when you look at the speed of some cyclists. Mm. Uh, Sheila was in touch to say, I think more people are wearing helmets now than they ever did, Michael. Mm. But still, you see many cycling without them. I think the parents should definitely make it their business to make sure that their children have helmets on when they're on bicycles. Yeah, if you can get them to wear them. Mm. Well, I know years ago mm. it wasn't a thing, oh, but no. I know when my children mm. were cycling, I used to make them wear the helmets. Mm. Yeah. You know, I mm. tried my best mm. anyway. Well, I remember when it yes. wasn't compulsory to wear a yes. helmet on a motorbike. 
Do you? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Frank believes that there should be laws governing cyclists on our roads, not just to protect them, but also to protect other road users, mm-hmm. especially pedestrians. Uh, so that's his thoughts That ties on it. in with the first comment, doesn't it? It does. Mm-hmm. It really does. Um, we had another listener who was in touch just to say that, Michael, I was listening to your show last week or the week before and you mentioned during your comments about the need for cycle lanes and mm. I really do agree with that. I think that councils now, when they're p- making their plans uh, for the coming years, that cycle lanes should be incorporated in areas as much as possible. It's just not safe anymore to be on a bike. It's too dangerous with the amount of traffic on the road. Mm. And I have to agree with that too. But how anybody can cycle in Dublin, Michael, I don't know. Mm. <laughs> if we think this, you know, the, the North East is bad and the city centre must be, you'd be, I'd be terrified. <laughs> um, and we also had, uh, who was it? Oh yeah, Geraldine phoned in to say that um, she was travelling recently actually in Dublin and says that she feels that uh, the amount of cyclists in very busy areas where there's big uh, trucks Mm. and you see the trucks going almost side by side with the cyclist and she says that it's just accidents waiting to happen, she feels, and Mm. definitely that the helmets should be an absolute must. Yeah, well, the helmets uh, certainly make a a lot of sense uh, when you hear those statistics about a serious head injury or a fatal head injury, 70 and 65% greater uh, the chance uh, without a helmet. uh, But uh, it's possibly easier to cycle when the traffic is heavier and going slower as it is uh, in Dublin than when uh, it's moving freely and faster uh, in other areas. Uh, But the idea of cycling alongside a a truck is always uh, one to be cautious of uh, because of the suction that can uh, yeah. occur and uh, that can be uh, very, very serious uh, and uh, obviously it's uh, the cyclist who loses out in such a scenario. OK, we'll yeah. finish on that, Michael. Thanks for that, Marie. Thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us as well today. Our telephone number is 1850-715-958 if you'd like to make comment on the programme. Marie and Maggie are taking calls on that number, as I say. 1850-715-958, our telephone number. You can also text us today and our text number is 86 658 Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the number of uh, people who are hoping uh, to get a uh, nomination uh, to stand as a candidate in uh, the presidential election continues uh, to grow. One of the hopefuls, Kevin Sharkey, joins us now, an artist, TV host and uh, political activist. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us here this morning. Uh, I gather that you're hoping to get uh, the support of four local authorities. How are you, Michael? Good morning. Thanks very much for having me on the show. You're very welcome. Um, uh, before I go any further, let me just say, um, I was on TV for five minutes 40 years ago. <laughs> so <laughs> I wouldn't exactly call myself a TV presenter, but apart from that, bang on and everything else. I am indeed, Michael. I'm engaged in the process at the moment. I was at Tarlow last week, and I'll be in uh, Kildare next week, and I'll be visiting Laos soon. Okay, uh, and what uh, do you think makes you a suitable candidate to become the President of Ireland? Well, Michael, I grew up believing that the Presidency of Ireland was something that was beyond the reach of most Irish citizens. And in a way, it's become uh, it's become a retirement home for politicians, really. And the, none of that is, are, is a qualification for running for the presidency. And in my experience growing up in Donegal and here in Dublin, I found that um, of late, in the last few years, we've had this huge drift 
towards Europe. And I think Europe is, can be very good for us in many ways. But I do think that we're losing Ireland in the process. And I'm watching increasingly as Ireland becomes a byword and you're, where everybody talks about being new Europeans. So my, my pitch really, Michael, is very simple. I saw a couple of years ago, I was homeless, and I found it within the housing system, I found that there was a very un, uneven disparity between Irish people and non-Irish people. And it struck me at that time that Irish people weren't being prioritized for services, for hospitals, and things like that. And when I mentioned it, suddenly people said, oh, you must be a racist. And I was like, no, I just think that this is our inheritance. Ireland was... You know, Ireland was built by people who lived on cabbage and bacon, and they left behind them a wonderful country, which is an inheritance to all of us, including my own mother's grandfather. And now at the moment, I'm just very mindful of the fact that I see other countries where we've raced down the European road, and the culture and the, the, the customs seem to become less and less relevant. And I would like to think that Ireland will always remain Ireland. So when I talk to the councils, what I'm saying to them is, look, I don't think it's fair to expect Irish people to constantly go to the back of a queue. And I don't think it's racist to say that they should be given preferential treatment. Mm. It seems like common sense to me. So that's one of the reasons. Um, I think I you told to the councillors in Cara that you have some admiration for Donald Trump and his America First policy was mentioned in relation to what you seem to be suggesting is uh, an Irish people first policy. Yeah, it, you know what? First, first of all, let me just say something about Mr. Trump. Um, I believe in democracy, Michael. And what I saw happen in the States was an election, and it was won by somebody who, who is very unpopular. Now, my pitch to the county councils in Carlo was that I would rather have an effective boss than a nice boss. Obama was a great president, but he didn't get a lot done. Mr. Trump seems to be delivering on his promises, and that's rare for a politician. The economy is doing well. I'm not so much an admirer of the man, but I am an admirer of any politician who at the age of 74, and he could be off playing golf, he has a beautiful wife, and he decides he's going to do something to give something back to his country. And I do admire anybody who does that. Right, uh, and the idea of the indigenous people being put first, as you put it. Mm-hmm. You but- see... That doesn't have to be the exclusion of anybody, Michael. But I think if if we don't have a priority there for Irish people, eventually what will happen is people like myself, my father was an immigrant, came from Nigeria, and I've had an amazing, wonderful life in Ireland, and I, I couldn't wish for a better life. And I would only wish that for anybody who comes here from another country. But I do know that if the numbers ever tilt over, that we will have the problem not just for Irish people, but for the people who are coming here. And I wish them the same welcome, the same open arms that I got. You know, when I grew up in Donegal in 1961, mm. I was born. I was the only black guy in the whole county. And Irish people could have rejected me. They could have ridiculed me. They could have laughed at me. But you know what they did, Michael? They opened up their homes and their hearts, and they made me feel welcome. And the old Cade Mila Falcha, it is real. And when you go to rural Ireland, where people in those days didn't have very much, whatever they had, they shared. And we here in Ireland, we have a huge reputation all around the world for being generous. And the people who come here who work hard, who contribute to our society, of course we're always welcome. And we need immigration in Ireland. You know, look at the hospital staff. They're amazing. They come from other parts of the world. But there are now benefit tourists. There are now people who live in very poor parts of the world, and I can't blame them for wanting a better life, Michael, but we can't give everybody a better life. Okay, Uh, but can't you expect that uh, people in this country will be treated the way you were treated in uh, Killy Beggs, or 
uh, would you hope that they would be treated the way your mother was treated in the United Kingdom or your father when he, he came from Nigeria? Okay, well, well, first of all, um, my mother was never in the United Kingdom. She's from Artane. She's from Dublin. She's a little white woman. And she, the way she was treated was she went to a mother and baby, uh, the St. Patrick's mother and baby's home in uh, the Navan Road in Dublin in 1961 and had me. She was an unmarried woman. And when she came back after a couple of weeks of having me to feed me, they slammed the door in her face and said, he's gone. So my mother, uh, he's gone to a better place. And that was the last I saw her for 37 years. Now, my mother wasn't treated very well by the authorities and by the powers that be, but she stayed in Ireland. She went on to marry an Irish man and she had Irish children. My father came here as a medical student. And to be honest with you, Michael, he didn't behave himself very well. He got into trouble and he didn't finish his education. And then he went off to the UK. So, you know, my background, while it was pretty mixed, it was the Sharkies in Donegal. That's where I grew up in Killybegs. And, um, you know, it's, it's with country people that I grew up. You know, one of the things I discovered, Michael, as I was growing up was I didn't see a black person until I was nearly 13. So to me, it was like they didn't really exist. But when I did see them, I, I, I find myself thinking, oh, what am I supposed to do with this? I knew nothing about Africa. I knew nothing about being black. But when I went out into the world and I looked in London and America and Japan and China, what I discovered to my amazement was that this thing which had blighted my teenage years and in some ways um, throughout life, this racism thing, I could never understand it because when I met Africans who were racist towards white people, I thought, what? Are you serious? And then I discovered that all around the world, people are tribal, Michael. They prefer to be with the people they're comfortable being with. And, and that sometimes is described as racism, and it's not. And people, good People are often shut down in conversation the minute they mention immigration because people say, oh, you're against this, you're against that. I think it's time that we became for Ireland and not to the expense of anybody else. Racism is a horrible thing, Michael. When, it's, when, you, when you experience it, it takes away your rights, it takes away your dignity. You know, people can reduce you to one N word and you mean nothing. And that's a very, very difficult thing to deal with. But when I started looking at racism and what caused it and where it came from, I had to be honest with you, Michael, mm. to look at myself and say, well, am I racist? And what I realized was, while I wasn't racist, I was tribal. You know, we have football teams in Ireland, you know, Cork's playing Kerry, Donegal's playing Carlo, and we want to, we want to muck savage them, we want to beat them, we, you know, we get very tribal at times of sport, and I think it's, it's not fair to, to, to you know, to yeah. shut people down who want to have a, a good debate, and that's one of the things as a president I would like to do, hmm. is to start having adult discussions about these things, which we weren't allowed to have before. You know, yeah. and is that a, a, an appropriate conversation for the president to, to have? Uh, because uh, whilst I, I'm sure uh, you believe in what you're saying and you believe that you are not racist, there's people listening to us this morning who will hear what you're saying to be racist and will tell you that just because the colour of your skin is black doesn't mean that you're not a, a racist. Uh, and, of course, and, and, and I agree and, with them. And, and if people accuse Kevin Sharkey of being racist, uh, well then you're marring the presidency in no, controversy no, should no, you be I successful would, I, in your bid. Well, I agree with you on some part of that, Michael. What I'm saying, I did an interview on RG recently, 
And I've spent my entire life as a black man having white people tell me what racism is and isn't. And in truth, Michael, they haven't a clue what they're talking about. I am a black man who's experienced it all my life. So when I went on RT and I wore a T-shirt to say, I am racist, what I was doing was letting everybody know that we are all guilty to some degree of racism, of tribalism. And this, this, this idea that... I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist, that there's no racism out there, that's just nonsense. It does not drive forward the debate. And the role of the presidency, as it happens, being a black man, I would see it as appropriate to discuss this because I've listened to people give misguided views on it for years. And I also think people say the presidency is not, a, you know, you, you, you have no power, it's not a, a powerful job. It is a very powerful platform to open debate. And debate is exactly what we need here now. We just came through the Eighth Amendment vote. And the thing that really I found remarkable about that was that both sides disagreed permanently on their points of view. But both sides have one thing in common, and they should work towards that one thing in common, which is reducing unwanted pregnancies. We were not allowed, Michael, to have these conversations years ago because the church did our thinking for us. We've now matured. Me and you and people like us are the new grown-ups, and we need to start having grown-up conversations about the drug problem here in Ireland, and not while we're holding a pint and a fag in one hand. We lose authority with young people, and that's the other thing. The presidency of Ireland has become irrelevant for young people, and I'd hate to see that happen because we are, they're the next generation, and we need to re-engage them with the presidency. And I think for me, the platform of being able to talk about these things open and honestly, and somebody who's experienced a lot in my life and gone through a hell of a lot of good and bad, I have come out the other side, Michael, and I didn't just survive. I triumphed over it. You know, my childhood was extremely bleak. I was beaten. I was tied up. I was whipped. I was called a little black bastard. I was treated very badly, but I didn't get bitter. I didn't get angry. I forgave my mother for it, and I went on to love her. And that's what we need to start doing here in Ireland is to start being able to forgive the church, for example, the Catholic Church in Ireland is very sorely needed, but I'm watching a group of old men in Rome who don't know what the real world is like at all. They, they have no idea, and they want us all to go backwards, and it's not going to happen. There were 87 priests buried last year and three ordained. Now, they don't need me to tell them that, 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 that it's all going to go... It's all over, really, unless they change dramatically their thinking. And I'm not sure they can, but I wish they would. And I think for us here in Ireland, we need the church. We need the ceremonies of the church. And I feel at the moment, until they own their crimes and until they own their mistakes, we cannot move forward. And I really think a truth and reconciliation you know, would be a great idea for us in the Catholic Church, because at the moment, the Pope is coming. And everybody's talking about, apologize to the victims, apologize to the victims. You know what, Michael? The victims don't want an apology. The Church owes the Irish people an apology. And that's an apology for the damage that was done to our relationship with God, because these were God's right-hand men. And I, I feel bad every time I hear about another pedophile priest, and I think there's another stone for them to throw at the church. And if they would step in, man up, and sort this out, we could all move forward. And I think that's progressive thinking, and I think that's the way we should go. Okay, as you speak to us, you're campaigning to get into the campaign. What's your sense of it at this stage? What are you hearing back uh, from uh, councillors around the I had a great day down mm. in Harlow, mm. and I got, you know, the most you can hope for, Michael, is that people give you that they listen, that they're respectful, and that they take on board what you're saying. And I felt in Carlo, I left there feeling very, very happy. The response was excellent. And that's all you can hope for. You know, this is a decision for councillors to make. And what I would say mm. is there are a lot of councillors out there who got into that job to be of service to people. And I was appalled to find out that when Michael D 
mentioned he might run, all three political parties who didn't need to back him immediately said, we're backing Michael D. Michael D didn't need anybody backing him. What that is is a direct attack on democracy. That can't be allowed to happen, that the Irish people are denied the vote. This is not a vote for RTE, for the Sunday Times. This is a vote for the Irish people, and they should be allowed to elect a president that they want and see fit to serve in office. And I think we're moving towards having a citizen president, and I believe that that's me. Okay, well, nice to talk to you, and thank you indeed for joining us. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. Kevin Sharkey, uh, who would like uh, to get a a nomination uh, for the uh, election of uh, the next president of Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Minister for Children, Catherine Sabone, has uh, told uh, the Daily Mail today uh, that since 2016, investment in childcare has increased by over 80%. Without that increased investment, prices would probably be higher and fewer children would be benefiting. But she also said that the cost of childcare is too expensive. Laura Erskine, Head of Community with mummypages.ie agrees. The cost of childcare has been a topic that has uh, really upset families over the last number of years and, and really probably since the recession hit when suddenly we found ourselves with mortgages that we could no longer afford and a childcare bill which equaled our mortgages uh, and that's where families really felt the, the big squeeze uh, and since then the government has promised to do lots to help ease the pressure on parents but very little has has actually come to fruition there has been uh, you know an introduction of a child care subsidy whereby the government are now subsidizing up to about 40 euro a month for parents mm. and that goes directly to the child care provider but i mean you can't imagine that 40 euro a week is really going to make that much of a difference to a family who can have you know one to two children in child care and bills um, adding up to as much as a thousand euros for full-time childcare when both parents are working. It really is a, a lot of money. Seven hundred and forty-five euro, I think, is the average monthly cost. But rising to over a thousand in Dublin and Wicklow, Cork, just under that, as is Kildare. But uh, next on the list, then, as uh, the most expensive places uh, to pay for childcare are counties Meath and Louth. Yes, that's right. Um, There's a big difference between the the city locations and the more urban locations. And I think that's because, um, you know, the cities, obviously, there's a a bigger population and a greater demand for childcare facilities. But also you've got lots of of parents where both parents are working and the demand seems to be higher than in the more urban locations. Also, I think that the choice um, in terms of, of... parents who, who are commuting um, is much more difficult when living in the city and that crashes seem to be the only option whereas I think more local child minders and mums who, who perhaps are stay at home mums and, and, are, and are happy to earn a few extra quid doing some child minding tend to, to pick up the slack when it comes to um, to compromise or to helping out the, the mums mm. who are who are working in more urban locations. The, the cost of course then of rents and the electricity and bills um, are obviously are lesser in the urban locations but I mean the, the cost of staff will, will essentially be the same because the government have put quite strict rules in place um, after the prime time scandal regarding the, the level of qualification of childcare working, workers in formal settings uh, and of course what the minimum wage is for, for those workers yes, so it's, but um, quite often they're working at the minimum wage or in very low rates why is childcare so expensive? 
they are. Um, they are working at the really at the bottom end of the minimum wage, uh, and I think it comes back to the the rules that are in place. There's a very strict rule regarding the number of caregivers um, to each child. For example, a child who is aged six months to twelve months, there must be uh, there must be one caregiver for every three children mm. in that age group, um, and. So I suppose there's, there's quite a, a large number of staff in proportion to the number of children that are, that are in their care, and of course that that's supposed that is absolutely right and correct because these are these are our most precious um, assets in the world, our mm. children, and we want to make sure that the quality of childcare is you know meets what what we would give to them at sure. home, and and those standards have to be maintained. Is that ratio comparable to other countries? Uh, I mean, do they have as many staff elsewhere? I think they do. I think the big difference between Ireland and other countries is that the, the government does an awful lot more in terms of investing in childcare. At the moment, Ireland invests 1% of GDP into childcare provision and early education, uh, which would be preschool education, whereas in other countries that's as much as 8% in other European countries. And so that level of subsidy that um, other governments are providing to working parents um, to help ease that financial pressure makes goes a long way. And of course then there are other, um, I suppose, cultural differences mm. where, uh, where both men and women take time off work to care for their children, the maternal leave is, is shared between both parents uh, and so a child really doesn't need to enter childcare until they're at least one year old because of, of the way parents can share that, that paternity and maternity leave in a paid manner so, so they're not under financial pressure. I suppose parents should get used to the idea of having to pay out like this uh, because I mean that average of 745 or uh, more accurately put uh, in local creches in or around a thousand euro per child will continue for the rest of that child's life. Uh, We hear the cost of going to primary school and the cost of going to secondary school. I'm reading today that uh, a survey from the Irish League of Credit Unions is saying that people are expected to borrow on average €2,500 to put their children through college. Uh, So it's an expensive business to have children in this country. It absolutely is. There's no such thing as, as free education and certainly um, not subsidised childcare. And when you think that those families where both parents are going out to work and contributing to the exchequer, there should be some sort of tax relief that is applied to those tax-paying parents. Um, and, and I think the next government are going to be under huge pressure to, to do something that's much more meaningful um, and that payment go directly to parents as opposed to childcare providers. But as you say, education is certainly not free. There's a big cost attached to primary schools is on average of a thousand a year and secondary schools that's increasing because of the addition of technology to um, our our students who are are learning now through iPads and Mm. e-readers and the big investment parents have to make there and then of course third level education um, there there are fees involved there's also accommodation involved for those who who are in college away from home Um, so, so the costs just keep mounting up. It is a very expensive business and certainly I'd be encouraging um, any of the mums and dads who are out there who who, who can afford to, to um, I suppose, channel some of that child benefit into saving for parts of that education to, to using that some of that child benefit to alleviating the pressure on childcare costs. It's really the only way and unfortunately so many mums 
uh, and dads are, you know, are really feeling the pinch. In some instances, they uh, there are mums who do, who can't go back to work because they can't afford childcare, but yet they need to go back to work to save later on mm. for for their education. So we're all stuck between a, a rock and a hard place, and I think the government need to do more to alleviate the, the pressure on parents when it comes to to uh, early childcare, yeah. early education, and 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 our education well, system. And, and that says it all, doesn't it? Somebody who's on minimum wage or a, a low pay scale cannot really afford to have children. Absolutely not. Um, and that's where, uh, you know, the system of benefits comes into play, where it makes more sense for them to be claiming an unemployment benefit and a lone parent benefit. Um, but that's a know, baby not afford to get married. Absolutely, and the cost of wedding, so that's a whole other thing. But, yeah. you know, um, and that's, that's, that's the situ- the reality of the situation. Mm. And, and it's where we, we see parents um, who are forced to, to use other means uh, to, to subsidise their childcare or to try and bridge that financial gap. So they use foreign workers, they use au pairs, mm. um, they're paying them much less money, there's much less um, focus on, on maybe the education of the caregiver, and um, while of course they will have vetted them in terms of of their you know their ability to care for a child, mm. they may not have the qualifications in terms of first aid and 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 um, childcare professional qualifications. And then of course we're leaning on on aunts and uncles, um, you know we're leaning on grandparents um, to help out, um, you know one two three days a week, uh, just so that they can they can have a part time childcare place in a formal facility rather than having to pay for a full one uh, and and honestly it's you know it, it mm. becomes very difficult i think employers are are starting to recognize that because the government aren't and they're trying to provide more flexible options where people can work from home and that's certainly making a big difference well i mean the uh, cost speaks for itself uh, i'm sure anybody and everybody would think that's a considerable amount of money to have to pay out for childcare in this instance uh, but uh, perhaps uh, it would pay not to be married and to be unemployed uh, rather than be in employment and married uh, because of the benefits that you might get through welfare here. But at the time uh, that Joan Burton impoverished lone parents, she was talking about a a Scandinavian-style system of childcare in this country. In fact, I think she promised it. Uh, But if we had a Scandinavian-style system of childcare in this country, it wouldn't matter if you were married, single, employed, unemployed, or any of these other criteria, because that's the type of funding that you were talking about earlier on that the state gives to something that they see to be so important for people. But that's it. We ha- we have an aging population, and I think universally we want to procreate. We want to keep bringing our population along. Um, at the moment, there are you know there are only uh, two workers for every one person in retirement, and that's decreasing all the time. You know, twenty years ago there were four people working to support every person in retirement. So it makes sense that um, you know that the the exchequer invests our taxpayers' money, regardless of whether you actually have children or not, you'll still benefit from those workers who will support you in your retirement. We, we need to invest much more and see the bigger picture when it comes to childcare and having taking that Scandinavian approach. We're, we're effectively, we're investing in our future. And that you'd be paying little or nothing, as the case may be, in some of these countries. 
Absolutely. Um, it's so heavily subsidised that really it's only a nominal amount of money that you pay. Um, and, and of course, the standards are well maintained because there's a, there's a great government focus on it. Uh, and then there's, uh, there is options for, for people who are more rurally located um, who can share um, a state-supported nanny with another family. Um, so really, there, there are so many, many more options that are family-friendly when it comes to facilitating childcare and early education. And, and it's something that our Mummy Pages mums have campaigned about. We've, we've written budget proposals to the government regarding childcare every year for the last six or seven years. Uh, and unfortunately, it, it seems to be falling on deaf ears or, or very, uh, very small um, elements of, of our proposals get um, get listened to and put into action. And then, of course, there's always a big timeline as to how long it will take to to implement any of these ideas and, and I think the government just keeps, keeps shifting it from, from one government to the next by putting these big 10-year pro- plans of action in place where nobody ever actually has to be responsible for seeing it through to the end. Alright, that's Laura Erskine Head of Community with mummypages.ie speaking to me before we came on air. Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Sergeant Ronan Farley of Navin Station joins us for the report this week. But before the call for assistance into crimes, I know that you want to extend your thanks to the people of Drogheda and further afield for that matter. Yes, Michael. Michael, good morning. Um, just before we start, we'd just like to say from Angarda Sheikhana, a big thank you to everybody in Drogheda and everybody who was involved in the FLA. Uh, it was a fantastic success. Uh, half a million people through Drogheda in the last week. And from a policing point of view, virtually no incidents worth talking about. Incredible. And we'd just like to thank everybody involved for that. OK, and uh, I think there was a lot of praise for the policing of uh, the event as well. There was a relaxed attitude taken towards uh, the party that people were having, which uh, I think made people feel safe and secure and there was no antagonism. Yes, and mm. as you probably saw, Michael de Gardy got involved and got mm. into the spirit of it and uh, took part in various jigs and reels and all of that, Indeed. which was good to see. All right, OK, uh, we'll go to uh, this week's uh, report and some of uh, the crimes uh, that you have to tell us about. So the first is uh, the theft of a van. This was in Dundalk last Wednesday. Yes, Michael, this happened in an industrial unit in Coes Road in Dundalk at 5pm last Wednesday. Uh, a worker stepped out of his van to get something at the back and with that a man appeared. He hopped into the van and he drove off and he was followed by a black Volkswagen Golf with an ordinary registration. Now, uh, further inquiries revealed that this Golf had two men on board. Uh, the driver uh, was wearing an orange T-shirt and a blue hat. And the passenger, that's the man who got out and stole the white Ford Transit van, um, he was wearing a navy hoodie. Now, this van was found abandoned the next day in Newry. Um, it's just somewhat unusual. Um, so anybody who was in the Coase Road area, they might have seen this black Volkswagen Golf partial registration LKZ if they can assist we'd ask them to contact Dundalk Garda Station OK we'll stay in Dundalk uh, we've a, a burglary to report on we've a, a number of burglaries actually to report on uh, this week uh, the first of them at Mount Rath in Dundalk Yes this happened at Mount Rath which is on the Knockbridge Road in Dundalk and it happened last Wednesday daytime sometime between 10am and 2.30pm 
uh, a garden uh, shed or garage was broken into and there was a total of four bicycles taken and a Honda lawnmower. Now we know from house to house inquiries that there was a white van seen in the area around 1pm. So again if anybody can assist with that, the Mount Rath area, Knockbridge Road and Dock uh, we'd appreciate a call to Dundalk Arda Station. Further north uh, to Carlingford and uh, another burglary, uh, this was at a, a garden shed, was it? Yes, this was also a, a garage attached to a house and this one happened um, sometime last Thursday between 9.30pm and 2.30pm on Friday and it happened at Monksland outside Carlingford. Again, a garden shed uh, was broken into and there was two lawnmowers taken. One of them was a ride-on lawnmower so the culprits would have needed transport a van or a car pulling a trailer. So anybody who was in that area might have seen something suspicious or unusual, we'd ask you to contact Carlingford Garda Station. OK, and uh, we uh, go to RD, uh, not one but two burglaries uh, to report on. Both happened on Friday afternoon. Yes, Michael, uh, these are connected. Um, the first one happened in the Rahanna area, north of RD, between 2pm and 4.30pm. A house was broken into, the rear patio window was smashed, the house was extensively ransacked. Um, We know that there was a a man calling to local houses around 3.30pm on Friday purporting to sell firewood. That's something we'd like to follow up on that. Now, a short time later, there was a second house broken into in Churchtown, which is not too far away. And uh, the alarm activated in this house and three culprits were seen running from the scene. They got into a black Audi uh, with a G reg and headed in the direction of RD. Now, there was also a driver waiting in that black Audi, so there was four men in total in that car. Uh, so if you have any information on that, the Rohanna and Churchtown areas of RD last Friday afternoon, we'd ask you to contact the Gardaí at RD. And you believe that the two burglaries are connected, as you say? Yes, yeah. Michael, mm-hmm. same mm-hmm. modus operandi mm-hmm. in both cases. Okay. And you'd like to identify the man who was selling firewood door to door? Yes, door? indeed we would, yes. All right. Uh, we go uh, to Navin for uh, another burglary. Uh, this one happened overnight uh, last weekend, Saturday night, Sunday morning. Yes, between 11.30pm and Saturday night and 8am Sunday morning, a house was broken into on the Dublin Road in Navan and the keys for a white Volkswagen Tiguan Jeep were taken and that vehicle was taken from the driveway. It has a 151 LH registration. So if there's any information on that, Navan Gardy would appreciate a call. Okay. Excuse me, uh, we'll conclude uh, with uh, the papal visit. Uh, the World Meeting of Families gets underway today and across uh, the next few days. Uh, it's going to be busy at times and busier again at other times. And uh, of course, uh, there's uh, a lot uh, of uh, restrictions uh, that will be uh, experience uh, particularly going into the city and around the Phoenix Park and that and you've got the traffic hub at Ferry House. <clears throat> That's correct Michael as you know there's about half a million people expected to attend the Mass in the Phoenix Park on Sunday. Now from a local point of view there is a major park and ride facility at Ferry House Racecourse so anybody coming by car now we have asked people as far as possible to come by public transport but there will still be people coming by car from the North East, from Northern Ireland they will be directed to Ferry House Racecourse and we have parking there for 6,500 cars. And from there, there's a fleet of 55 buses lined up to transport people to the M3 Parkway Railway Station at Dunboyne. And they will get the train from Dunboyne to the Phoenix Park and enter via the Ashtown Gate. So from a local point of view, there will be a lot of heavy traffic approaching Ferry House on Sunday morning. The gates open at 7am, so for a good few hours there will be heavy traffic heading towards Ferry House. We won't have any roads closed 
but for local residents, just to bear in mind, the R153 between Ratote and the Black Ball and the M3, that will be uh, there will be very heavy traffic on that route all morning. Obviously, there will be a lull in the afternoon and again on Sunday evening as people are coming home, there will be heavy traffic again. So just to bear that in mind, and if you are driving to follow the signage, there will be lots of extra signage put in place and to follow directions of Gardaí and stewards on the day. OK, and uh, when it comes to the evening, that'll be 6, 7 o'clock in the evening, I take it, will it? Yeah, about 7pm before the people start arriving back at Ferry House. And of course, they will all be arriving back uh, around the same time, yeah. whereas in the morning it'll be more spread out. Mm, so uh, it'll be busier again in the evening than in the morning. It, most it likely, will, yeah. and mm-hmm. the, the mm-hmm. M1, the N2 and the M3 will all be very heavy northbound Sunday evening, just to bear that in mind. Mm, and uh, I suppose the main thing for people uh, to consider is that it is going to be busy and to be patient, to expect it, uh, because uh, you're going to find delays in getting to the park and ride uh, and then that's the story for the rest of the day. It's walking, queuing, walking, yes. standing, yes. queuing. Uh, and uh, I think one of the guards described it uh, as like trying to uh, walk up Crow, uh, Crow right. Patrick at one stage. Yeah. Well, it is a five kilometre walk from yeah. the railway station to the mass site in the Phoenix Park. But give yourself plenty of time. There's plenty of places to rest and take your time. Mm. Have your phone fully charged is another good piece of advice. There's lots of further advice on the Garda website, www.garda.ie. That's it. And don't uh, expect uh, that you'll be the only person leaving the Phoenix Park at uh, the end of uh, the event this Sunday. We live there, though, for the moment. And thank you indeed. Sergeant Ronan Farley of Navin Garda Station will return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. But that brings our programme today to its conclusion. Our time has run out on us once again. Before we go, our thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Murray in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie